I would like to warn you that this episode of Off the Watch List is spoiler-filled. So, if you've seen the movie, or you just don't care, welcome to the podcast. Hello, and welcome to Off the Watch List, a podcast about the movies we have no excuse for missing. My name is Luke. My name is Sophia. This is a podcast where each episode, I suppose, one of us will watch a movie that we have never seen before, which the other has seen. And right off the bat, we have been greatly influenced. The whole idea for this podcast kind of came about as a result of Andrew and Craig, the guys over at Overdue Podcast. So if you happen to like what we're doing here, go give them a listen. So what movie did you watch this week? I watched Sunset Boulevard. I'm loosely familiar with the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical of the same name. As you are with many musicals. And so this this has been on my watch list for quite a while because living in L.A., I like the aesthetic of it. And I do enjoy what I know of the musical, which is not a lot, but I'll probably you know, drop just some references or comparisons here or there as we dive into the movie. Absolutely. So do you have some background? Yeah, we'll just kind of start off with a couple facts about Sunset Boulevard. The movie is both directed and I believe co-written um, by Billy Wilder. Uh, and it was produced and also co-written by Charles Brackett. They're the two people behind the masterminds behind Sunset Boulevard. It's a kind of popular staple of the noir genre. It's been incredibly influential in both Hollywood and like all of film culture, basically. In my opinion, Billy Wilder is one of the most uh, underrated and underpraised directors out there. Even though most people know of him and of his movies, especially Sunset mm -hmm. Boulevard, he's never really compared too closely to other directors kind of of his time. And I think the reason behind that is that Wilder was slightly known as a more friendly figure than many of those people. <laughs> he was a uh, he was like very witty, very smart, very intelligent. Um, and from my knowledge pretty easy to work with but that doesn't um, make a good story which doesn't make a good story and also <laughs> if you put him in a two shot with alfred hitchcock hitchcock will take up the frame more both physically and in personality <laughs> he's kind of overshadowed a lot of the time despite him having honestly one of the best film resumes you possibly could have he interesting. he's directed a a ton of really really famous movies especially with marilyn monroe oh, um, okay. the movie some like it hot with marilyn monroe as well as the Seven Year Itch. The Seven Year Itch is the movie with the iconic Marilyn Monroe standing over the grate with the wind coming up shot. Oh, okay. So I haven't seen any Marilyn Monroe movies, so we should maybe put some on my list. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get to them eventually. But he's also done famous movies like uh, Double Indemnity and Sabrina. He's won a ton of awards. His movies have been nominated for all kinds of Oscars. But still, you don't really hear him his name thrown around too much in terms of the greatest directors of all time, which is kind of a shame because he probably was. Uh, and it really comes to light in Sunset Boulevard, as we'll get to in a moment. But I have a, a couple couple fast facts about Billy Wilder and Sunset Boulevard. Tell us the fast facts. Are you Luke. ready for some fast facts, I'm, Sophia? I'm ready. <laughs> First fast fact is he was born in Poland, but spent most of his young adult life and adult life in Berlin in the 1920s. And that's where he first became a screenwriter. So I know I know that a lot of film composers came out of Europe in the early 20th century and, and came to Hollywood because of 
uh, Nazi persecution there. So was was that speaking of okay <laughs> the second fast fact Wilder is Jewish. Oh okay and yeah, he yeah, was yeah. he was in Germany during the rise of the Nazi Party. Okay he fled for Paris, which didn't end up being as much of a safe haven as many Jews during World War II had hoped mm. it would be. Because of that, he moved to Hollywood in 1933. Got it. Yeah, yeah. I remember hearing. I didn't know if that applied to all all aspects of, of film, but I, I know that a lot of Jewish creatives came to Hollywood during that time period and, and kind of influenced the the rising industry there. Yeah, it definitely made a difference on the era of filmmaking. So he kind of got his start in Hollywood in um, 1939. He wrote a movie called, uh, I'm not even going to try and pronounce it, Ninochka, I think. Our I'm, guess I'm is as butchering good as that. I'm sorry. It's it's like a weird comedy that he he wrote in 1939, okay. and that kind of got him off the ground running as a writer. And eventually, he landed on his feet as a director with Double Indemnity, which is another film noir, which is incredibly successful and incredibly famous in the history of film. And he co-wrote that with Raymond Chandler, the crime novelist. Mm. Yeah, and so he was directing films in Hollywood in the 1930s, 40s, 50s. It is kind of interesting, like you mentioned, we had a lot of, we, we think, when we think of innovation during World War II, we think a lot of like technical and warfare, mm -hmm. but there was a lot of artistic innovation yeah. during that time because a lot of people like brain drain, people had to flee Germany mm -hmm. and they came to the US where there was a lot of financial opportunity and stuff like that. Yeah, That's a, a big thing. And also what this did is it brought German style filmmaking to the U.S. The Germans had a very significant noir presence in, in Germany. There was a lot of the very expressionist noir pieces mm -hmm. in film with very stark shadows and weird shapes. It almost looks as if a Picasso painting was a movie. It's kind of strange. The third fast fact, <laughs> uh, there are a couple casting things and stuff like that which are kind of interesting, especially around the two main characters, Norma and Joe Gillis. Mm -hmm. Basically, there were a ton of different people that Wilder wanted to play Norma, but none of them wanted to because they all kind of took offense to the role. Yeah. Which is kind of funny because... <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> guys, we'll get into the summary. It is not very glamorous towards actresses or actors. Wilder went around. He started with Mae West, who was a very big name at the time, but uh -huh. she found the role unflattering and turned it down. And that problem came up again and again. They approached a lot of silent film stars including Mary Pickford, Paula Negri, and Greta Garbo. Although, Hey, you want to be in my film about a has-been <laughs> who's like, <laughs> who's delusional now? <laughs> and then George Kakor, he suggested Gloria Swanson. Okay. She was also a silent actress who hadn't really moved into talkies yet. But instead of being like Norma, having her career fail and all that kind of stuff, she went to New York and started being an actress in television. So okay. she was rather successful in television, which was fairly new at the time. Much like Norma, she was insulted that Paramount wanted her to do a screen test. She was <laughs> upset about that. Don't they know who I am? <laughs> exactly. Uh, but Wilder convinced her that it was worth the uh, audition to get the role, and so she did it. And then along with that, another little casting note is the character of Joe Gillis. Wilder originally wanted to cast Montgomery Clift because mm -hmm. he was sort of the young up-and-comer but you know i think i would have liked him better you think so i did not love the casting of joe gillis really i like the musical one better <laughs> naturally <laughs> did this guy not sing enough he wasn't very likable to me like i wasn't well you're going to uh you're going to be excited when you hear who they almost cast instead outside of montgomery clift oh okay cliff turned it down 
and he claimed it was because the story of like the relationship between Norma and Joe was too similar to what he had done in another movie called The Heiress. The real reason it may have been was because he had a relationship with an older singer whose name was Libby Holman. <laughs> People believe that she thought that the movie would have been a mockery of their relationship. <laughs> <The> subtweet. <laughs> <laughs> Basically a, a 1950s subtweet. Uh-huh. Wilder tried to get Gene Kelly to play the role. Oh, uh, uh, okay. <laughs> you were about to say you love Gene Kelly, but then you remember how he treated... Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, on, on Sleeping in the Rain. He was not, he was not good to, um, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, I know her name. Debbie Reynolds. There you go. <laughs> I was going to say she was Debbie Reynolds' mom, but she's not. She's Carrie Fisher's mom. Yes. Okay. And so he tried to cast Gene Kelly. Didn't work. Gene good. Kelly might have had the charisma for the role. He also tried to cast Marlon Brando instead. <gasps> I love him. I know you love Marlon Brando. I love him. <laughs> At the time, Marlon Brando was exclusively a Broadway star. Um, he hadn't done anything in Hollywood. They Wilder was a little bit, a little bit hesitant to cast a stage gotcha. actor, which time has proven to be a mistake. Well, <laughs> but eventually William Holden, who played in the movie, got the part, and the movie made him into a crazy star. He That's was in fine, a, I guess. <laughs> he was in a ton of other Wilder movies, really successful because of the movie. And I know you weren't a fan of his performance, but. Yeah. He also was nominated for an Oscar, so... Well, good for him. You're wrong. Hope he lost. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. those are a couple fast facts about the movie. I have more, but it would take way too long. Excellent. I have a fast fact about Billy Wilder in the meantime. Go for it. He's referenced in the musical version of Sunset Boulevard. There's a song kind of in the middle, which takes place at the party, which we'll get to. But everyone's kind of saying their New Year's resolutions. And one of the extras says that the next year she wants to get her big break and become so famous that Billy Wilder will know her name. And oh <laughs> I didn't <laughs> I didn't know that was the director of the movie until you pointed that out, actually. So <laughs> I'm going to be interested to hear your thoughts on on the comparisons between like the plot and the setting of the. Yeah, the- there's some differences and there's also some stark similarities. So we'll 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 get to that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, We'd also like to give a potential content warning. The main character in this movie, there's several mentions of attempts on her own life. So if that is troublesome to you, we'll give a, um, we we can just call out a content warning before we get to that section and and skip ahead 10, 15 seconds. Absolutely. Yeah. um, So let's just jump right into it. Okay. So the movie opens with our narrator, Joseph Gillis. I don't think they ever call him Joseph in the movie once. Okay. Well, his name is Joseph. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So anyway, the the movie opens with just some shots of Shocker Sunset Boulevard, which actually kind of looks like it was outside UCLA, which is interesting. Really? So it opens shot of Sunset Boulevard and then a shot of a guy face down in a swimming pool. He is dead. And, <laughs> and, it or not. and the, the whole movie is narrated. It's very heavily narrated, actually, by the main character, Joe. Did you like that? I had. I don't know. It's very odd that the narration style, it, it felt a little bit almost cliche. I think in the modern day, there's lots of just like kind of punchy one liners like, yeah. oh, this thing must get 
10 gallons to a mile. Like, <laughs> um, but yeah, so so he um, he's like, record scratch, freeze frame. Yep, that's me <laughs> face down in the pool. <laughs> You're probably wondering how I got here. So they go back uh, six months when he is a struggling screenwriter and he hasn't been able to sell anything in a while. And so he goes to Paramount trying to pitch a story he's written. It's a baseball picture. I wish it was that easy. <laughs> and it's interesting in, in the musical, there's this whole big, just kind of introductory number where you actually meet a lot of characters who don't come into the movie until later on. Uh, like Artie gets introduced here and, and Betty a little bit early and, and such. My point is <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber lifted the dialogue for that number almost word for word from the first like 15 minutes of the movie here and like he added his own but every line they said in the movie i had heard before um, okay so he he goes to paramount he's trying to pitch this story he's like oh this guy over at 20th century fox is pretty like pretty interested in it trying to make himself sound better but then sheldrake calls in the script reader betty and she's kind of like yeah this story sucks <laughs> And he's like, oh, meet Mr. Gillis. He wrote it. Uh, so he doesn't sell Wait, real quick. the story. Yeah. One thing I love is that she doesn't back down. She's like, oh, yeah, no, it's bad. She's like, oh, I'm sorry. It was terrible. That your script sucked. <laughs> meet Mr. Gillis. He wrote the screenplay that you hate. Oh, you wrote it? You're a terrible writer. <laughs> she says, right now, I wish I could crawl into a hole and pull it in after me. And he says, if I could be of any help. <laughs> so they get off to a contentious start. But we learn that Joe is really, really desperate for money. He hasn't had any work in a long time. And there's some guys looking to repossess his car because he hasn't made payments on it in three months. He also hasn't paid his rent. So what you're saying is he's just your average LA person. <laughs> so he's running from the repossession guys and he turns into this big old mansion on Sunset Boulevard that looks to be abandoned. He pulls in there because there's just a big old empty garage and he's like, oh, I can hide my car here. But as he's getting out and he's looking at, there's this one other car in the garage and, and it's a big, super old luxury fancy car. And that's where he's like, this thing must burn up 10 gallons to the mile. I hate that line. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got another fast fact. Oh, okay, go ahead. While you're, while you're saying this, that the house that Norma's mansion was filmed on wasn't actually on Sunset. It was on uh, Wilshire Boulevard, which is not that far from Sunset Boulevard. They cheated. They did cheat. But the house that they shot in belonged to the Getty family. Oh, uh, interesting. Okay. Is it still there? Actually, no. It would appear in another movie, um, Rebel Without a Cause, a few years later. But the Gettys tore it down shortly after that and replaced it with a uh, office high rise. So well, that was stupid. Kind of sad. They probably could have turned it into like a big museum of movies yeah i would kind of like to go see that well anyway so he he turns into this mansion he thinks it's abandoned and then he hears someone calling him telling him to come in and there's this like big old entryway with a with a very stereotypical like adam's family butler <laughs> <laughs> whose name is max and he's trying to get out of there and like oh sorry i just wanted to park my car but this woman keeps calling him upstairs she thinks that he's there bringing a coffin for her dead pet monkey. Chimpanzee, specifically. Chimpanzee. And this is this is never followed up on. <laughs> <laughs> like, she's she's just... The, I mm, Why? This did not have to be in there at all. The first time I watched this movie, when it ended, 
my first thought was, wait, what happened to the chimpanzee? <laughs> yeah, I thought there was going to be a payoff there. Because they, they meet when she's like, oh, I thought you were bringing a coffin for like my friend or my baby. And she like pulls back the sheet and it's a, she's got the <laughs> dead chimp right there. And he doesn't even like react to that. First of all, <laughs> and yeah, it's just never mentioned again after like this real creepy scene of them, like burying the chimpanzee at midnight. Is that in the musical? I don't, I actually don't know. I can't remember. I think it might be referenced, but yeah, that's so weird to me. I am not a hundred percent certain why there is a dead chimpanzee at the beginning of this film. But my guess would be it's later as we'll we'll get to eventually. It's like super emphasized how lonely Norma is. Mm. Uh, like, like they couldn't have given her like a dog. Well, that's I think that's the point is she was striving for something as close to human connection as possible. But she couldn't get mm. human connection. She should have gotten an octopus. <laughs> that's the, about as opposite from a human. They're as you so get. smart. They love to play. <laughs> they also have eight legs and, and um, tentacles. <laughs> my, my apologies. Anyway, he comes in. He's like, oh, I am not a coffin maker. <laughs> I am a scriptwriter." And he recognizes her. She's Norma Desmond, who is this big silent film star. And this is where we get a very famous line from the movie, I think, where he says, oh, you're, you're Norma Desmond. You used to be in silent pictures. You used to be big. And she says, I am big. It's the pictures that got small. So anyway, she she's mad at him for a minute because he's not the coffin guy and kicks him out. But then as he's leaving, she seems to register that he was a script writer and, and she wants him to look at the script that she wrote. Salome. Yeah. So they say Salome. And in the musical, they say Salome. Do we have a confirmation of how to pronounce that? Let's see. Salome. Salome. They were right in the musical. Wow. Okay, so she she has written this script because she's planning not a comeback, as she corrects Joe, but she's planning a return to the screen. Um, <laughs> and so she's written this film about Salome, and of course it will star her. Naturally. Yes. And so she she is all riled up. This is going to be her big her big return and Joe reads agrees to read the script. Basically, he he pitches her a super high rate because he knows that she's incredibly rich and he's incredibly broke and it's terrible <laughs> and it's really long and it's really bad. But she won't let him cut anything or make any edits, even though she's hiring for like five hundred dollars a week to edit her script. And she convinces him to stay. Well, first to stay overnight and then he wakes up in the morning and the butler has gone and moved all of his things out of his apartment and into the house. <laughs> <laughs> so he just kind of stays there. It's also never explained how he got into his apartment. I'm sure Max can do any. I'm, I'm sure he. He just teleported yeah. through the wall. He, he appears wherever the will of the film needs him to appear. I bet Max just has a skeleton key that can open any door <laughs> <laughs> in Los Angeles. I will. I will note here because we're kind of at the point where he first Joe first gets to the house. I really do like the voiceover of him exploring the house the first time outside of that car line. Interesting. I like uh, like when he looks at the tennis court and the mm -hmm. uh, pool and all these things. Yeah. And he talks about how like, oh, this is where like this famous star would have swam all those mm -hmm. years ago. And now it's just decrepit and empty. And then it cuts to like the rats at the bottom of the pool. Yeah. It's, it's got very some spooky shots. Yeah. Very effective. Black filmmaking. and white. Yeah. Black and white picture. Yeah. The black and white filmmaking adds a lot to the noir aspect of it. Yeah. Especially in this sequence. There's, a, there's something to the noir genre 
which is kind of lost in the neo-noir genre, although there is it a little bit. But there's a definite like subtle horror element to mm. noir as a genre. You kind of always have this sense of dread. And even though you know it's not a scary movie, every time a character is in a dark room and turns a corner, you're like, oh, uh. what's going to happen? <laughs> and it might be an aspect of like the the gothic setting but that sequence is very effective at kind of building that dread and tension but at the same time like that that's part of you know it just seemed a little over the top to me like the, it was empty or was it it's uh, certainly stylized yeah i i just you know like no nobody's inner monologue is this dry all the time speak for yourself now we get this section of the movie where we see joe just living in Norma's mansion and Norma is extremely self-absorbed and enabled by her butler, Max. So she, you know, she's got photos of herself in the height of her fame all over the house. She, you know, reads and responds to her fan letters every day. She gets thousands of fan letters and, and you learn, I think you learn around this time, like Max reveals to Joe that he's the one who's writing them. And he, you know, he just feeds her all these like, oh, everybody remembers you. You're you're the greatest star. You will never die. And every night they watch a movie, but only her movies. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is just how it goes for a while. And, and Joe is sort of trying to edit this script. He's really just interested in, in, you know, running the clock so he can get paid. So during this time, Norma starts becoming increasingly generous monetarily towards joe um you know she pays off the rent on his apartment they go out driving she buys him all these expensive clothes and her excuse kind of is like oh you need this for my new year's party that i'm throwing and every once in a while she plays bridge with a bunch of these old silent film stars so she's very much did you recognize any of those people i did not uh buster keaton was one of those people uh, Buster Keaton is one of the most famed probably behind Charlie Chaplin one of the most famous silent film stars of the era oh. he um made all kinds of uh, movies sherlock jr was one of his movies Neato. and he was a fantastic physical actor he didn't really transition to talkies too well either and the other two in the room were also silent film stars anna nilsen and hb warner were the other two in the room yeah i i saw at the credits there's a list of people who just played themselves and and yeah. um cb demille yeah, the DeMille. yeah the director is one of them another fast fact buster keaton was known in Hollywood as like one of the best bridge players in the oh, town. Interesting. Okay. And so they're playing bridge in that scene. And so Wilder told the other actors in the scene to watch how he like handled the cards and stuff like that and to mm. imitate him. And so just kind of interesting that they're playing bridge and they got Buster Keaton to do it. It's it's interesting too that he has such a small role because he really was mm. like one of the biggest possible names wow. out there. I did not know that. But yeah, so you, you just have this image of her life, you know, she has money to burn. She's very much wrapped up in the past and the, the people she used to work with and the person she used to be. So she throws this big old New Year's Eve party and Joe is kind of expecting like all the people from the bridge games to be there. And, you know, she pulls out all the stops. There's all kinds of champagne. There's she hires. It's not even a quartet. It's like a full string orchestra to, to come play. <laughs> um, and he puts on his fancy clothes that she bought him. And he comes downstairs and they dance together on this tile floor where Valentino did the tango. After a while, he asks, oh, so when are the when are the other guests 
coming. And surprise, there are no other guests and she's in love with him. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> yeah, she's like, oh, can't you see that I love you? He probably has the most logical reaction of anyone in a movie who's been told that some random person that they just met loves them. And he's like, righty, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, so he just leaves. Well, do we know the age gap between these two? I think he's supposed to be. I would put him at like like early mid 30s. 30s yeah okay. yeah like i think i think his character is supposed to be like 32 33 he's gotcha. he's a down on his luck screenwriter and not in a way of like oh i used to be great and i've fallen but in like a, oh i'm trying to get on my feet but also he's been in hollywood for a while he's been in hollywood for a bit and he's written b movies but he hasn't been able he's he hasn't been around long enough to make a success gotcha um yeah so she's like 20 some odd years older than him but so he dips and he goes to his friend's New Year's Eve party, his friend Artie Green. Who seems like maybe the nicest person Artie, ever. Artie Green, he, he stole rocks. The show. I, yeah, he's a good guy. Betty is there. It is revealed that she and Artie are engaged. And Joe asks to live um, at Artie's place for a while. Artie agrees because he's a rock star. Uh, <laughs> so, so Joe calls Max. Well, first, okay. First... Joe and Betty have this kind of odd scene where they're like bantering and kind of flirting with each other. And I didn't really like it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a little strange. It's the first time I watched the movie. Yeah. I was just like my eyebrow, one eyebrow was raised the whole time. It's like, what's going on? I don't know what they're quoting there because they're clearly quoting something yeah i don't know if I don't it's know joe's either. screenplay and if it's a movie i haven't seen the movie that they're quoting yeah it's pretty clear that they're having like pseudo flirtatious dialogue but mm-hmm. it feels either flirtatious or like two people who have known each other for an extraordinarily long time which they have not which they have not but it's weird it kind of comes across that way yeah like they're best friends and this is like an inside joke between them because mm-hmm. they're finishing each other's sentences in a way that only like a best friend or a lover would do yeah it's it's very odd even though she kind of roasted him in front of the guy he was trying to sell a screenplay to she has read some of his other writing and there's a scene in one of his other screenplays that she wants to take and expand into a full movie. She thinks he has potential and then she is also trying to branch out into into screenwriting herself. But he's not interested. He he doesn't want to do it. It draws um, a great a great dynamic between his relationship with Norma and he's kind of committed to rewriting this terrible screenplay that's old and overblown and self-absorbed. And then in contrast, he meets this young girl who he obviously has this flirtatious banter with mm-hmm. and she brings up this idea of writing this new screenplay that's just based on one scene, one mm-hmm. small scene that he wrote that she thinks is good. And so she sees the good in his ability and wants to bloom it into something bigger. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Norma sees her own grandeur. Uh, grandeur and he and sees him as like a tool to, I guess, flatter herself. Yeah. 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 Joe is all set to stay at Artie's. He calls Max... Oh, and, and here's our here's a content warning come up to tell him to pack his things. He's going to move into Artie's and Max refuses to talk to him, saying that Norma attempted to take her own life after Joe rejected her. So Joe goes back to Norma because he he feels responsible. He feels guilty. So he walks in, he sees her and he he embraces her and they maybe kiss but no they kiss well it's, it's not shown it's not shown but like he leans in and she has her hand on the and back then of it his like head. fades to black but so but they could have just hugged 
<laughs> I think you're helping a bit too much here, Sophia. <laughs> no, yeah. Which they... is like, okay, if they did kiss, that's weird. And also, I was I was just curious. The two reasons I can think of why they wouldn't have shown that. One, if they wanted to leave it kind of ambiguous, like what his response to her was. Or would that have been a product of the Hayes Code? I don't think so. This was 50. 50 1950 yeah um the code was fully enforced by hollywood until the the mid 1930s and then mm. after that it kind of started to slowly decay people okay. were chipping at it and i think it finally like everything about it died in 1968 by 1950 it was kind of at the end of its rope as like a very strong force in hollywood. okay yeah i just wasn't sure if they were maybe trying to avoid too much it could be possible that they were doing something like that or maybe there was a a certain rating that they were going for gotcha. and only one kiss was allowed like kind of how there's only one f word allowed in movies nowadays so you get a pg-13 rating okay so now there's this there's another period of time where joe's just living at norma's house they finish the script or joe just decides to to stop working on it and she thinks it's perfect so they take it to paramount she wants to deliver it to uh, C.B. DeMille, the director at Paramount, who she worked with a lot during the silent film era. Also a real, very successful, famous director. Mm-hmm. Very different from Billy Wilder. He directed a lot of biblical movies. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. But also he did a lot of very critically successful, but audience dividing films. Interesting. If you look up his movies on, on like Rotten Tomatoes, he most of his movies are like 98 critic score and 49 audience score it's bizarre i think he's just okay like the movies i've seen of him are just very slow and kind of you know it's perfectly made but it's boring (laughs) yeah like most people who watch movies nowadays would consider him Mm. kind of boring gotcha as time goes on she's getting really excited because she starts getting all these calls from a paramount executive named gordon cole but she will only speak to DeMille. So she refuses to talk to him, but like, oh, Paramount's calling her. They must really want her. Um, So then she gets sick of waiting and she has Max drive her and Joe to the studio. Once they get here, it's actually, it's kind of neat. There are a lot of people there that still recognize her and kind of flock around her, which I wasn't expecting to happen. I guess that reinforces who she used to be. Yeah, and also you'll notice a lot of those people are old. Yes, yeah, and and... So the public doesn't really remember her, but she was very significant. It shows Um, the difference between we as audience members of movies, when we see movie stars on screen, they can come and go. They're just characters in our eyes. But these mm -hmm. people who worked on these sets, they knew her as Norma Desmond, like the the film star. And so the first person to kind of call her out is the the spotlight guy who uh, turns the spotlight onto her in that dramatic moment or whatever. And you can tell that he's... 65 70 yeah. something like that and just because of that it shows that all these people worked with her and knew her and that she was she was an actual big deal and so she sees demille the director and he's very happy to see her but is kind of dodging all her questions about the script because it it's a terrible script he also gives a really good performance yeah he does this is an interesting component to norma's character i think you learn that she was discovered when she was 17 yeah and that's when she kind of got into the industry and so that i don't i don't think norma is a very sympathetic character but that definitely helps when you think about you know someone that young and this is the only 
adult life she's ever really known. And so once that fades away, she didn't really have anything to fall back on for someone so young to just catapult to such enormous fame and, and popularity and then have it all taken away. Like, of course, she would still be trying to relive that. So anyway, she she's talking to the director. He's avoiding her questions. And you see someone outside talking to Max, who informs Max that the reason Paramount has been calling is because they saw the car <laughs> that Max drove to deliver the script and they want to rent it for some period piece. (laughs) (laughs) And so Max realizes that they don't actually want to cast her. They just want the car. But like Max does, he decides to withhold this information. So Norma doesn't really get an answer from DeMille about the script one way or another, but she somehow convinces herself that she got a yes, we'll make the (laughs) the movie. She's like, oh, well, of course, he's got to finish this movie first, but then I'm the next priority. And so she starts getting all these beauty treatments. She's, you know, kind of preparing herself for for the role. And Joe starts sneaking out at night to meet with Betty because he has decided that they're they're going to develop that scene into a screenplay together. I also found it kind of comical that like, of course, there's like the illusion of sneaking out at night to have an affair. Mm -hmm. But I like I kind of like got a chuckle out of the fact that the affair is the writer leaving his current writing project to work on another writing project with another (laughs) writing partner. I find that kind of funny of like, if I'm working on a project with my writing partner, I would feel kind of weird going to another person. Like, Hey, you want to work on a project? Yeah. It's, it's, there's a little bit of comedy in there. Yeah. And so Max finds him coming back in and there's there's a couple of these scenes with Max where he just kind of cryptically reveals some information and then just <laughs> just <laughs> kind of goes about his business. But he tells Joe that he used to be a director and he is the one who discovered Norma, made her a star, and then married her and he was her first husband. And then she, and then divorced, she him. divorced him. And then he decided that he just couldn't live without her, so he's going to stay and be her butler. And that's just another piece of information that didn't have to be there. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, I really wonder what made them think this was a necessary part of the story. <laughs> like he could have just been the butler. <laughs> it does kind of show the aura of these silent film stars uh-huh. and just how they attract everyone. It's another part of that scene where she's at the studio and all these people are coming to see her and see her. Just the draw. Just the draw. Because these, like, even Hollywood today, actors and actresses are legends. Like people see them on the street and just huh. go towards them. Like, oh, I want your autograph. I want your picture, whatever it is. And it just is another way of showing how inescapable that life is, especially for Norma as she tries to get back into the industry because she can't live without it. But it also shows that someone like Max or the people around her, they can't live without it either. Mm-hmm. Max can never stop viewing Norma as this perfect star yeah. uh, or perfect star lit. Yeah, that's that's interesting because like he he also is aware of who he, she is now and that she's become obscure, but he is still perpetuating that for her sake. So So Max finds out that Joe has been sneaking out. Norma also suspects it, but he keeps kind of blowing her off. He's like, oh, I just went for a walk. Then you find out as Joe and Betty are working together um, that Artie is in Arizona. And meanwhile, Betty has fallen in love with Joe. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know. It's never it was never really clear to me how Joe feels about this. Like he reciprocates those feelings 
Kind of. But all of his choices regarding it seem really odd. Like he he kisses her, but then he's just like, "Well, I gotta go now," <laughs> and and they don't really they don't really talk about it. Um, but that night while he's out, Norma finds a copy of the script with his and Betty's names yeah, on it. Back. Yeah, and um, also it's called Untitled Love Story. Untitled Love Story. Written by Joe Gillis and Betty. <laughs> she phones Betty. Um, she somehow, she like uses the name, gets the information. So she calls Betty at home and basically is like, oh, so you like this Joe guy, huh? Well, do you know where he lives? And with whom? <laughs> <laughs> Joe walks in on her making this phone call and snatches the phone out of out of uh, her hand. And then inexplicably, he's like, look, I'll tell you what's going on. Why don't you just come over and see for yourself and gives her the address. And then Norma just falls to tears and, and is like, oh, don't hate me, Joe. And so then Betty gets there and he kind of brings her inside. He doesn't introduce her to Norma, as I recall. So she never sees Norma, but he's like, wow, look around all these pictures. Norma Desmond lives here. Look at this TV. Look at this pool. Look at how great this this mansion is. And basically, you know, tells her very loosely about the arrangement as it is and kind of puts on this act of, look, I got it and I got everything all worked out for me here. Why, why would I leave? And just kind of sends her off. This might be something that you picked up on a future viewing because I've uh-huh. seen this movie a number of times and it's interesting looking back on this moment for the character of Joe, like what's going on under the surface? Cause obviously you're watching, you're like, okay, what's your plan mm-hmm. here? You have this young like beautiful person who you love and who loves you mm-hmm. and she wants your transparency and your honesty and all this kind of stuff she wants to write a screenplay with you she thinks you're talented mm-hmm. and then you have this wealthy old lady who you're profiting off of uh, who loves you mm-hmm. and who you could probably profit off of for the rest of her life and so he's got these two situations and it's kind of strange how he doesn't choose Norma and doesn't choose Betty. He kind of is just weird throughout it. Um, But on repeat watching, I kind of looked at Joe's character differently where at this point he's sort of recognized how terrible of a person he is. Mm. He says it a couple times when he's talking with Betty. There's the point where he tells her to stay two feet away from him because if she comes any closer, then he's like, he's going to kiss her. Uh, does he say that to her? Does she say that to him? He says that to her. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so there's there's moments like that where he kind of calls out his own problems. And then, especially at the end, in his sort of rant to Betty, he tells her all about how he's, like, profiting off of, of normal. He's like, why would I give this up? Like, like, what can you give me that is better than all of this? She, of course, has nothing like that sort of money to offer him. She mm-hmm. just has love, I guess, to offer mm-hmm. him. I think that's Joe realizing that like I've been profiting off of off of Norma this whole time. I'm a terrible person. I've been taking advantage of Betty this whole time. Mm-hmm. She's engaged to my friend Artie Interesting. and okay. I'm I'm doing all these terrible things. I am a bad person. And he tells Norma that he's going to move to Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, I'm packing up. I'm leaving. I'm going because I think he's just resigned to the fact that he has been a scumbag to everyone in his life. And that's what his motivating factor is here. Gotcha. And then he goes back up to 
Norma's room and starts packing his things and she is getting frantic asking him what he's doing. He tells her that he's packing up. He's going back home to Dayton, Ohio uh, to work in the newspaper business there. He's had it with Hollywood. Uh, Another content warning here. She begins threatening to kill herself because she'll be just so distraught after Joe leaves her. It's, it was interesting here because she is very clearly unraveling at the prospect of him leaving. And you can sympathize with Joe wanting to get out, but he's also very insensitive to her. So he, he chooses this moment as she's kind of falling apart to just tell her, you're not getting any fan letters. Max was writing those for you. And yeah. you know Paramount's calling because they just want your car. Nobody remembers you. Uh, and he says all these things and he runs out. And she's following after him. She's grabbed her pistol because she's been making those threats. And he's just, he's ignoring her. He keeps walking. He's walking towards the pool. So she pulls out the pistol and instead of shooting herself, she shoots him three times. And he falls into the pool and he's dead. And that was actually interesting because, so you see him dead in the pool at the beginning. So obviously I knew this was coming at, at this point in time. So I was I was watching Norma and she didn't seem angry or anything. She she didn't seem like, oh, how dare you leave me? She She seemed still very sad and like pleading for him to come back, which doesn't seem to me like a, a motivation to kill him. Oh, I, she's, she's gone completely in, insane yeah. by this point. And you can see it in the coming scenes as we'll talk about, mm-hmm. but she shoots him not out of anger at him for leaving, but because you're abandoning me, you can't do that. Yeah. It's not logical. It's emotional. Yeah. And she has this line just, uh, a couple minutes earlier because Max is in the room when Joe reveals that Max has been writing the letters and she says, Max, is this true? And his only response is to say, Madame is the greatest star of them all. And so she, she internalizes this and she has this line where she says, I'm the greatest star and nobody leaves a star. That's what makes them a star, which doesn't quite track to me, but I I think she takes Joe's leaving as, as a personal affront to who she is as well. Yeah. And so so she she kills him. He falls into the pool and he's dead. And then he keeps narrating. <laughs> like, he, like he just keeps telling us and he's like, oh, there I was dead. <laughs> and, Originally. and that that felt like a very weird choice to me. I don't I don't think I liked that. Well, fast fact number whatever for the day. The movie originally opened in a morgue and oh. it was going to be a ton of bodies lying in a morgue mm-hmm. and then they all wake up and oh. tell each other the stories of how they died wait i don't like that at all <laughs> well so like one of them's like oh i got like x happened to me and i died and then joe is there and he tells the story of norma do i have a story for you <laughs> <laughs> you're not gonna believe this one yeah okay i'm so glad they didn't go but with that i hate that <laughs> that they shot it and that was the original opening but test audiences found it too funny they watched it and it was too comical because there's all these dead people talking and they couldn't stop laughing. Don't they like sat up in unison. <laughs> yeah. So while they cut the morgue opening, but left in the beyond the grave uh, narration, as he described mm-hmm. it. Okay. So now we're back where we started. The The homicide has been reported. And so, you know, obviously the, the house is being just swarmed by policemen, by reporters, and these newsreel cameras actually show up to to just kind of take some footage of the scene 
And Norma's up in her room and she's surrounded by reporters who are all trying to to just interview her, ask why she did it, what her relationship was to Joe, what like what X, Y, and Z, and she's not answering any of them. You can see she's completely disconnected. She's in her own world. And then Max comes and he tells her that the cameras are there, which we know are the newsreel cameras coming to to report on on the scene. But she hears that and in her own world, she believes that the, the cameras are there to film Salome and she's getting ready for the movie. And so she the movie ends with the scene and Max to the very end is is still enabling her and in, in allowing her to live out this fantasy and, and playing into it like he as her former director, he steps back into that role and, and is calling for for lights and for for cameras and and is giving her directions. And so she descends the staircase very grandly thinking it's part of the scene and all the while she's surrounded by these reporters who are really just kind of stunned and frozen so none of them are moving and she fast gets, fact oh she the character is wearing heels in that scene uh-huh. but gloria swanson was not wearing heels because she was so scared that she was going to fall i'd be scared too. apparently when wilder yelled cut for that moment Gloria Swanson burst into tears because she was so scared that she was going to fall down the stairs. But so she descends the staircase, she gets to the bottom and she makes this speech about like how just how happy she is to have returned to the screen and to see everybody there and how much she's missed them and how like this isn't the end after this movie. They're going to make another movie and another movie, except they say pictures. They they never say the word movie. They just call them pictures. Make pictures. another picture and another picture. And, and, and so she's looking around and she believes she's back on the set. She's being adored. And then the last line of the movie is the, the very famous, all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close up. And then she just walks very grandly towards the camera and fade to black. And that's it. Looking down her nose, condescending. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very weird expression on her face. But so that is Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> That's the whole movie. That's the movie. Yeah. Another little quick fact to kind of wrap them all out. Mm-hmm. At one point in the movie, Norma says how she made Cecil B. DeMille's career. Mm-hmm. She was in his first movies that were a big hit. Mm-hmm. And that's what kind of launched his career. And fun fact, Gloria Swanson was in a number of Cecil B. DeMille's movies at oh, the cool. beginning of his career. In reading about this movie, I really kind of liked how, I think intentionally, they they blurred some of the lines between what was fictional and what was biographical for different people um you know they have the actual actors and and directors and so she exists this character of norma desmond exists in our world as it as it is and she and, and gloria swanson were very similar people i mean i think you mentioned this was gloria swanson's return to to the screen after being in silent films as a young actress and yeah it was it was just very interesting in that way it feels very real yeah even though there is this weird blur between fantasy and reality this i feel like the reason why it works so well with the reality portion is that this is the experience of many silent film stars during this Mm -hmm. time was when when talkies came about and i mean a lot of movies explore this Singing in the Rain does. Mm-hmm. But a lot of movies touch on how a lot of silent film actors just really couldn't transfer. Even Charlie Chaplin, though he did do talking movies and some very good ones of that. No one knows him for that. Yeah, and he, people know him for his silent film stuff. The Great Dictator is an amazing, really famous movie, and he gives an amazing speech in that. But he also notoriously mocked talkies as like a 
inferior form of mm-hmm. of filmmaking because we didn't need words we had faces exactly yeah just like we that. have faces too miss desmond <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so th- things like that i think that really gives the movie this feeling of of reality is that i'm sure if you were a silent film star and you saw this movie, it would be very convicting to you. Mm-hmm. You'd just be like, oh, that's me. I see myself. Yeah. And also, I feel like Hollywood itself and the film industry and, and the experience of being in L.A. And, and struggling or being successful in the film industry, I feel like that's a very, I suppose, romanticized, not necessarily romanticized, but it's it's a very um, fascinating trope in a lot of ways. I think one of the most interesting things about it to me is the fact that you know as long as hollywood has existed there's been people disenchanted with it and put off by how los angeles really is is kind of a town that was built on falsehoods and and on a facade and in pretending to be something you're not and this movie was made in in 1950 and and it's kind of a commentary on that aspect of hollywood Hollywood, which at that time had been around for a couple decades. I mean, you and I both live in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of experienced that city. Mm-hmm. And it's it's true for me. There's this weird juxtaposition almost between mm-hmm. the beauty and fantasy of L.A. and the mm-hmm. movie industry. Everyone you meet is, is an up and coming actor or actress yeah. trying to get their big break. And you have movies about that, like La La Land, for example, mm-hmm. which are just is just so about the glamour of hollywood although it also has the kind of undertone to it there is this idea of oh i want to make it and i want to be famous or i want to be a great artist or whatever it is and then you look on the other side and you see this dark underbelly of los angeles where there's so many problems with the city and there's so many people who go in and get chewed up and spit out Mm -hmm. and they might spend 15 years their life being extras in csi los angeles Mm -hmm. and then they move back to Ohio because yeah. they get tired of the, the the grind of living there. That's what is the essence of Norma's character is that L.A. has done to her what L.A. does to pretty much everybody who achieves fame there is, you know, in a couple a couple of years, they're they're done. Um, there's always someone. There's younger. always someone new, someone more exciting. And she can't or won't realize that. I really enjoy the type of movies where the characters aren't perfect, where they're not just heroes or villains. And this is the perfect type of of movie like that, where none of these characters are, except for like Artie and Betty, perhaps none of them are perfect. None of them are heroes per se. Max, Norma, Joe, all these guys have major problems and major flaws that even make them unlikable, Mm -hmm. but it also makes them very real. And I mean, if you live in Los Angeles, you're bound to meet a Norma at some point or you're yeah. bound to meet a Joe. And that's one of the things that I feel makes this movie so culturally relevant. And it's impressive that it's it wasn't only culturally relevant, but that it's remained culturally relevant. Yes. Well, that's Sunset Boulevard. That's Sunset Boulevard. Thanks for listening to Off the Watch List. If you have questions, comments or concerns or otherwise would like to contact us, you can send us an email at offthewatchlist at gmail.com. Uh, that's off the watch list, all one word, as is common in email addresses. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. 